hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, our Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Good morning, ladies. And you good men that uh, hung around didn't go on the uh, men's retreat. You notice last month Steve Evans spoke and he brought his water. Well, I got my water too and that's what happens to you when you get older. So when you see Rod from Jackson up here and they bring their water, you'll know that the end is near. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we run into people here at Cole for the first time or maybe they've been here for a while and they wonder why we don't have a senior pastor. I'm the senior pastor, right? I work with seniors, and, and I carry this great big black Bible. So if they ask you someday, you run into somebody who says, how come we don't have a senior pastor? You just tell them, what's that? It's that old man over there with white hair and has a hitch in his get-along, and uh, he carries that big black Bible. <laughs> when uh, I finished my formal Bible education, my wife and I moved to Prescott, Arizona, and uh, for the first month or so, we would go down on Saturday morning and check out the, the community, the city, see how things were going, and wouldn't buy anything, but we'd look around. And there was this guy down there that had uh, uh, gospel tracts, and he was passing them out, and he was saying, Wonderful Jesus, wonderful God. Wonderful Jesus, wonderful God. Wonderful Jesus, wonderful God. And I took one of his tracts and went in and, 
And uh, as the uh, weeks went by, we'd see him every Saturday. And that's all he ever said. And I thought, well, you know, I, I'm with Campus Crusade for Christ. At least I grew up in that little group. And, and uh, I knew how to witness the four spiritual laws. And, and you talk to people and you get to know them. And that's like, something's wrong with this guy. What's, what's his problem? And I was thinking maybe I ought to, one of these days, if I get in touch with him, I ought to kind of, you know, say something to him. It wasn't long after that that a friend of mine knew him. And he said, well... What happened to the guy is that uh, he's about in mid-40s and he was a building contractor and he was helping build a, uh, a building at a Christian camp. He was up in the rafters, he fell off, landed on his head and spent the next two or three years uh, with brain surgery and speech therapy. And all he ended with was wonderful Jesus. Wonderful God. And I learned something about myself. And that is that my knowledge life was more important to me than my love life. I would much rather criticize someone than try to understand them. And I find that we as Christians often are quick to crucify and real slow uh, to edify. And God has called us to the latter. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we want to be a people who make uh, loving others a sport for your glory and for their edification. Help us to understand our calling and and the great love that you have for us and and that you would work through us to demonstrate your love uh, through us to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, Our passage this morning deals with uh, confusion about eating meat uh, offered to idols. And uh, as Paul recognizes that some understood that that was okay and some did not, and it bothered their conscience when they would eat that meat. Uh, In the process, he takes the opportunity to introduce uh, polarized truths. And that is that knowledge produces arrogance and love produces edification. And he's going to carry that theme through the next six chapters. And so if you want a verse to memorize, it's the latter part of that first verse. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He wants them to know the theme of Christian living and its purpose. And the theme is to love the people God puts in our life. That's our neighbor. Anybody that's in our life is whom he wants us to love. And then that would cause them to be edified. And so what I want to do this morning is spend a lot of time in the last half of that first verse. But I must, of course, uh, take us through the passage and get the key elements in that passage so we can uh, make them uh, practical. He has two parts to chapter 8. The first part, he plays the no game. The first six verses. The last seven verses, he plays the grow game. He knows that they know about meat offered to idols. And they don't really know at all, though. But God knows them who love him. And he wants them to know two things. One is, there's no such thing as an idol, it says in verse 4. And there's no, no other God but one. So that's the key point. There's only one God out there. Then he goes into verse 5. 
and 6, and he shows a comparison between the culture, the Greek culture there in, in Corinth, and Christian, new Christian culture, or Christian truth. In verse 5 he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. What? What do you mean there are many gods and many lords? He just got through saying that there's only one God. But what he's doing is he's, he's, he's revealing from a Greek standpoint, they had their gods. They had little idols in the house and little idols outside and idols in the temple. Everywhere you look, there were idols. And so they had many gods. And, and their lords were their Caesars, were the Roman emperors. They called the shots. So if you were a Christian and you, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were in trouble because there is only one Lord in Rome, and that's the Caesar, the emperor. And so, verse 6, he says, Yet for us, as Christians, there's only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the point he makes in the first six verses. There's only one God, and all these idols out there mean nothing. Then he says, now this is uh, how I want you to grow. And remember, earlier in in the book of uh, Corinthians, he's been talking about how immature these Corinthians are. They need this instruction. He he says, however, not all men have this knowledge, in verse 7, but some being accustomed to idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. And so there are some who are still eating the meat, and, and when they do, they're defiled. And I'm going to come back to that, with that defiled idea. But let's go on. Verse 9, he says, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak person. You go into the temple, and you eat meat offered to idols, and they're watching you, and they say, Well, it's okay for him, so it must be okay for me. He understands the truth, and so they eat against their conscience, which tells them not to do it. And then what happens? Verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And that word uh, ruined is also translated in other passages quite often. It's translated destroyed or perished. It's a strong word. We ruin that Christian who has a weak conscience. Now, keep in mind, when Corinthians went and and had animals sacrificed to their gods, they would then go and eat that meat, part of that meat, some of it was consumed, would be eaten in the temple, and then other parts of the meat would be in the marketplace, and people could buy it. And he talks about that in chapter 10, and the problems associated with that. But right now, just speaking of the meat and, uh, and how the, the Corinthians were thinking uh, in that culture, uh, they were aware, at least in their thinking, which was wrong, but they were aware that when they sacrificed that animal the spirit of the God that they were sacrificing to would then enter the meat. And then when they ate the meat, they took in that spirit of that God, which later on in chapter 10, Paul says that they're worshiping demons. So uh, this is not a good thing. But they were not comfortable in understanding that there were no gods out there. That meat was okay to eat. And so they felt defiled because they felt that they just received the spirit of that other God. They begin to feel guilty. What happens when we feel guilty? We get depressed. 
we go around like this. You know, poor me. And, and they feel they've been rejected by God. Now they're rejected by Christians. And, and what essentially happens when he, when he says the weak, you've ruined the weak, is you've, you've caused them to become ineffective. They can't function. And he said, uh, not only have you sinned against them, down in verse 12, but he says you, you sinned against Jesus Christ himself. So uh, if meat's going to cause my brother to stumble, Paul says that I am not going to eat meat because I don't want that to happen to him, even though I have a right to eat meat. And he's going to go on now in chapter uh, 9, 10, 11, and all through there, and he's going to talk about his rights that he's going to give up because uh, not only for the sake of, of the weak brother, but he goes on and talks about unbelievers and the gospel of Christ. I've got to be, watch how I live my life. So, he says, take care how you manage what you know because some people are watching that are brothers and sisters in Christ. And they might be weak. Remember, Cain killed Abel, and when God confronted him, he says, Am I my brother's keeper? And in this passage, as well as when God responded to Cain, Yes, you are. You've got to watch yourself. So what's the problem? Let's go back to verse 1, the latter part there, where he says, knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge can be a problem. We all know that we need the knowledge of God's Word. It instructs us in righteousness. Uh, Paul even prays for it in Philippians that we grow in knowledge, understand the mysteries of Christ. So we need the knowledge of God's Word to live for Him. But we become arrogant with that knowledge when we don't join it with love and have love monitor that knowledge. The actual word here is more of a inflated or uh, puffed up. If you read the King James Bible, knowledge puffs up. And so it's that picture of, uh, you know, and, and if somebody walks up to you and acts like that, you're going to stare at them, right? Something's wrong with this guy or this girl. In other words, I want the attention for who I am and I'm right in what I believe instead of giving of ourselves to that other person. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has already said, that some of you are puffed up. And over in chapter 13, when he gives that list of eight things that love is not, it says love is not puffed up. So we've got to get our priorities straight here. We find that God hates pride and the arrogance that comes from that pride. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, God hates pride. He says, uh, I know oftentimes when you'll see uh, in the Old Testament when the other nations have defeated Israel and uh, they're all happy and they're proud of themselves and God says, hey, I'm going to come get you. My wrath is coming upon you because of your pride. And he does the same thing with the Israelites. When they stop trusting him and go their way, he says, well, I'm going to come in and discipline you. And he takes those same nations and he comes in and he spanks them. And, and what's so interesting about that is you go, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy. When they came into the land and the Word was taught, God says, I'm going to bring you into that land. I'm going to just bless you people to death. He says, I'm going to give you rain for your crops. Your animals are going to multiply. And when the enemy comes against you, I'm going to defeat him. And then he says, and you're going to take credit for it. 
you're going to think you did it. And he says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to send you into captivity because I hate pride and the arrogance that comes from pride. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, What did you have that you did not receive? Where did we get that high IQ? Um, Where do we get that athletic ability or that music ability or that uh, good common sense in, in, in being a businessman? Or our good health as we live older and older and, and uh, take care of ourselves to get there. How did we choose a woman in America to give us birth? Why didn't we choose a woman in Somalia or North Korea? Boy, we had wonderful foresight, didn't we? To choose to be born in this country with all the privileges that we have. God gave that to us. Oh, oh wait a minute. I, uh, I'm a great football player. And I got there because I trained hard. I was in the gym every day. I ran every day. Yeah, but who gave you that frame? And who were the people that introduced you and helped you along the way? Hey, I got an A in Chemistry 101 the first semester in college. And I worked hard to get there. Yeah, but who gave you the genetic ability to be able to take those pictures of all those atoms and and understand that and then answer all those questions? Who gave you that ability? The other half of the class, they flunked the class. They have to wait till next fall to take it. And they work just as hard as you. Who gave you that ability? What about my my health, Mark? I... I, uh, I ate broccoli every day, and I drank barley water, and I did the kinds of things that were going to help me be healthy. But who grew that barley? Who grew that, that good food, that good healthy food? And who made it available? And did your mother feed it to you, or did your wife feed it to you? Yeah. Everything we have is from God. What do you have that you did not receive? And in light of that fact, we are to relate to those who are weaker in recognizing that God has given us and made us uh, who we are. Now, we don't have people in our lives today that uh, struggle with uh, eating meat offered to idols, but there are those who are weak in conscience regarding excesses like with alcohol or gambling or overeating or playing violent video games, or maybe even dress in an unbecoming manner. And so Paul says, don't make it difficult for the weak to have victory over their weaknesses and cause them to stumble. Let me give you a couple of examples here. One is, is to show you how it's not causing someone to stumble, and another that does cause you to stumble. In the 80s, when I was a member here at Coleman Community Church, and I was on the elder board for a while, and uh, after one of our elder meetings, uh, three of the elders who were on staff asked myself and another elder that was not on staff to go out and have a drink. So I figured, okay, so we're going to go over to McDonald's. But we ended up at a bar, and they lit up their cigars and ordered a beer, and... Uh, 
a little bit of a surprise. And, and my, my other buddy, when, when we were off uh, sometime after that, and he said, now, didn't that surprise you last night when that happened? I said, yeah, surprised me too. <laughs> but it didn't cause us to stumble because we didn't have a problem with alcohol. Okay, see that? It's okay to have a beer or a glass of wine, a drink of alcohol. We're free. Now, let me take you to another time. When I was up in northern Idaho and I was pastoring, and we had a lot of Bible studies, and some of the men got together and they said, hey, let's, uh, let's have a Bible study out of so-and-so's house. And they said, yeah, fine, we need, we need an activity uh, with, our, with our men's group. So let's brew some beer. So they had a beer-brewing Bible study. <laughs> and, you know, they'd study the Word, and they'd, they'd do their work, and they had a great time of it. And, and, you know, a lot of us knew. I knew what was going on. It was fine. But a new couple moved up from the south, a southern state, became members of our church. They had some kids. And the, the father, the husband, was invited to come to that Bible study. And so he went, and it was discovered later that he and his wife were both recovering alcoholics. And they left that church in the south to get away from the atmosphere that they were in to come up north where people didn't drink beer. <laughs> and uh, it caused some severe stumbling with that couple. Paul says, don't make it difficult for those weak ones. You know, we can, we can control... We can control some things in our life, but we can't control how people react to everything we do. But we can make uh, an effort to consider our choices for their edification. Paul says later in chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And then he goes on uh, in chapter 13, uh, right up through 13, and he talks about how love really is a monitor of our knowledge so that we don't become arrogant, self-righteous, so that, and self-righteous, so that we can uh, uh, encourage others and edify others. Uh, then in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Pursue love. Pursue it. Go after it. Why? Because it edifies. Now, what I want to do at, at finishing... Uh, uh, this morning is to talk about uh, three reasons why we are to love the people God puts in our life. And the first is, uh, it's our calling. Now listen to the voices of some of these callings. One is, it's our new commandment. Remember in, uh, in John chapter 13, he says, uh, love one another. Uh, my new commandment I give to you, love one another uh, just as I have loved you unconditionally. That's how I want you to love people. Now, you go back in the Old Testament, you had your Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't bear false ones. All these don't, 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 don't. And Jesus says, do. So when I see the two signs up there, am I supposed to focus on don't, 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 and then I want to rebel to the don'ts, you know, like Mom says, don't, and you do. But I overhear Jesus says, no, you don't have to look at that. You just look at the do. Love as I have loved you. It'll take care of all those don'ts over there. Love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus in chapter 17, the night before He was crucified, says, Father, that love that You have given to me, I want it to go to them. I want them to have that same kind of love. It's also the proof of our, 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 our discipleship, that we are disciples of Christ. When He says in chapter 13, the world will know that You are My disciples by Your love for one another. 
So when we're not loving one another, we're not demonstrating that, they're going, uh, uh, Christianity and, and whatever. And it's the goal of our instruction. As Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, the goal of our instruction is love from, a, from pure heart and, and sincere faith. And uh, uh, misquoted that a little bit. But uh, the goal of our instruction is love. And so when we're teaching our children, we're teaching a Sunday school, we're teaching our mate, uh, pastors up here, we're not teaching to get Bible on the brain, although that's part of it. We need some Bible in the brain. But it has to go right down into the heart and right down into the feet, and it's demonstrated by the people we relate to. I want you to know that every book in the New Testament instructs us or commands us to love the people God puts in our life, except the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's demonstrated, but we're never told. Now, years ago I did a study on the, the words for love in the Old Testament New Testament. Some 850 times the, word, the, the four different words of Old and New Testament are used. And I found that we are never told in the New Testament, in a command form, a direct command, never told to love God. Now, some of you Bible scholars have to be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so you go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the context is Jesus is speaking to religious leaders or leaders in the community, or they're speaking to him, and the question comes up, what's the greatest commandment? And they all quote Deuteronomy 6.4, Love the Lord your God, as we sang earlier, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, yes, we are supposed to love God. By the way, Jackson and, and Rod come back. Don't say that that old guy with the big black Bible told us we're not supposed to love God. Okay. But we're supposed to love in a different way. Jesus never directly commands his disciples, love God. The disciples in their writing never tell the Christians, love God directly. But you know, in those three Gospels, all follow with, love your neighbor as yourself. Love those people God puts in your life. That's how, that's how we're supposed to demonstrate our love to God. He wants to see it. I can say, I love God all I want. I love Jesus. And you can do that. That's fine. As long as th that's being demonstrated. He wants it demonstrated in our lives. I want you to listen to the ways that uh, He commands us. You know, He doesn't just say, love God. He puts it this way, and I'm not going to give you the references. I'm just going to go through them. He says, oh, love. He says, prove your love. He says, pursue love. He says, serve through love. He says, walk in love. Be grounded in love. Be rooted in love. Speak the truth in love. When he, when he writes to... Uh, uh, Titus, he says, be sound in love. To the Thessalonians, he says, abound in love. The Hebrew writer says, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. First Peter, in his letter, he says, fervently love the brethren from the heart. And uh, I love uh, how he says it in the Colossians, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put it on. 
In other words, all those are active. We have to do them. I'll, I'll wait for God to love through me. No. There might be those surprise moments where we love and we didn't expect it, but He wants us to be focused on that. And so God wants us to, to love the people God puts in our lives. The first reason is because it's our calling. The second reason is because it's our need. We need to be loved as human beings. Uh, have any of you read the book, Someone Loves You, Mr. Hatch? Anybody read that book, Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch? I see that hand. I see another hand. I see a third hand. I see a fourth hand. And my eyes are only that good. Okay. What have you people been reading? <laughs> Mr. Hatch was a, a little man who worked in a shoelace factory. All he did was work with shoelaces. And he was one miserable little guy. And one, he didn't talk to anybody. Nobody talked to him. And one day he went home. And while he was there, the postman came. And he had this great big heart-shaped box with chocolates in it. And he opened it up. And the little sign in there said, Somebody loves you. He got all excited that somebody loved him. And so on his way to work that next day, he was waving to people on ladders and saying hi to everybody. And he got to work and he greeted everybody and they greeted him and said, what's happened to Mr. Hatch? And all of a sudden there was love going on in that uh, place where he worked and everybody he knew. About three or four days later, the postman came back and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I delivered this box to the wrong person. And he took the, the box and he walked away and Mr. Hatch knew that nobody really did love Mr. Hatch. And so he went back to work the next day and he didn't wave to anybody. He didn't talk to anybody. He returned to his old miserable self and everybody noticed and they said, what happened to Mr. Hatch? And somebody figured it out. So they went over to his house and they put up this huge banner. To, and, and when he came home, all the people were there the, from his workplace and the community. And they said, everybody loves you, Mr. Hatch. And he was happy again. <laughs> that, that, story, that story tells us how infectious love is. But it also reminds us that uh, we need love. And Mr. Hatch really does live in every one of us. Uh, we long for someone to confirm the value of our life. You know, and in, in silent pain, oftentimes we plead, please don't reject me because I'm tall or short, skinny or large, educated or uneducated, dark-skinned or light-skinned, smooth-skinned or wrinkled skin. Please don't care if my nose is long or wide, if my ears stick out or they fold back, if I talk too much or I don't say anything, if I'm loud or quiet, if my mouth is too big or too small, don't roll your eyes in disfavor because I can't catch a ball or I can't get out of debt or I can't balance a checkbook or I can't remember your name. Don't turn from me because of my pimples or the size of my feet or the ugliness of my past. Don't make fun of me because of my speech or my clumsiness or my shyness. Just know that I need your love. Our need for love lasts a lifetime. A baby's cry for it. A toddler's demand it. Little children expect it. Preteens look for it. Teenagers argue for it. Uh, young adults wish for it. Older middle-aged adults whisper for it. And older senior adults wait for it. We need to hear somebody say, 
you mean a lot to me. How's your daughter doing? I appreciate the way you smile. You know, and it doesn't take much to demonstrate love. It's not the big things in life often, although those are important too. But it, it doesn't take much. Back in, in the 80s, uh, periodically about middle morning, I used to go over to, uh, and, and when I was working on that side of town, a five mile in Cloverdale, and they got, um, what do they call that place, uh, where they, Country Donuts. Country, don't tell my wife. <laughs> I used to stop at Country Donuts. I had something to read there, and there was only maybe just a couple of people would show up, and I'd get my donuts. It was a nice, quiet place to, to read. And uh, I stopped going for about three months or four months or whatever it was, and then I, uh, I returned, and the place was crowded. And, and it was like a, a, a family reunion. Everybody was talking, and I, what is going on here? And there was only one place to sit over in the counter. I went over and sat in that one little spot. I didn't get my normal you know, area where there was a table. I had to go, on, and I don't like sitting on those round things that are hard. You know. But I sat there, and there's two ladies sitting right next to me. And one lady says to the other, well, I work here at the mall. And she says, this is the, the best part of my day. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, what is going on? All of a sudden, the new owner comes out, and he comes, grabs a pot of coffee, and he's running around, and he's calling people by name and asking them questions about their families and, and asking them what he can do for them. He created an atmosphere that I care for you, and the people love to be there, other than the donuts, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't really take much. When I was uh, pastoring in Northern Idaho, there was a, a couple on the church that were in leadership and they had left the church and they started a rumor saying something about me that wasn't true and somebody heard that and I know there are a few people had heard it and, and I was told and, and so I was a little on the downside hearing that and you know, what am I going to do about it? And, and that Sunday I'm sitting over on the side down an aisle and uh, I, I felt this, this hand touch me on the shoulder and give me a little shake and I looked up and this woman looks back at me, she walks by, she didn't say anything, she just looked and she kind of gave me a, it's okay. It's okay. And she was the woman who was closer to that couple than anybody else in the church. And boy, was that, to me, the best part of my day. And oftentimes I thought of that little tiny expression of love, just a, a tap on the shoulder and one of those. Sometimes a little note in the mail, whatever it takes to demonstrate our, our love for another. You know, no matter what our age, we want those around us to communicate their uh, our value to them in caring about what we have to say or do or haven't said or done. We want people to latch, latch their presumptive lips and listen to how we feel. We want advice or help that considers our own particular circumstances and not those of someone else. We want others to notice our depression and joy and sorrow and respond with understanding. And we wish somebody would call to see how we're doing or stop calling to give us a break. <laughs> you know, we delight in love served simple. And you know, there's those times when we're in our dark little closet in life and we know from Scripture that all we have is to call upon God. And, and uh, He's going to give us our comfort. But the rubber really meets the road when God uses someone to come down and touch us with His love in some little way. God wants us to love people that He puts in our life. It's our calling. It's our need. 
And third, it's our work. I always think that love was hard to do, and I've discovered after reading uh, the different words for love that it's not really hard to do, it's just hard to control. It's hard to, to, to direct. When I was looking at the words, we all are familiar with the word agape, but there's the word agapao, which is the verb to love, and we seldom hear about that, but uh, that's used much more often, 135 times in the New Testament. And uh, I wanted to find a definition for it because what I'd heard in the past wasn't making any sense to me. And so I came up with a definition of love. It's a voluntary or involuntary devotion to someone or some, something. Voluntary or involuntary. I mean, I might feel like it, I might not feel like it. But it's a devotion. And when it, when it refers to the unbeliever in scriptures, Agapao is saying they love evil deeds. They love the world. You know, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. Aren't you something special? And, and, and they love the approval of men. And you know, after we become Christians, we, we're the same way. We still love the approval of men. We still try to satisfy ourselves with what the world has for us. And we, we devote ourselves to that. And also keep in mind, God has supplied us with all things to enjoy. First Timothy. So we can enjoy all those things that, the, that God has put in this world, but it's that focus, that primary focus that he has for us, which is devote ourselves to what? Well, when you go to the, the times Akapao is used for the Christian, is devoting ourselves to our neighbor, which is to God, thus to our neighbor, even including our enemy. And... Uh, God has put people in our life, and oftentimes we have to start right at home because that's the most difficult place to love. But uh, our work is to really is to change that direction because we are being transformed with a new mind to, to, instead of going in the direction of the world and the approval of men, He wants to turn us in the other direction. And so really that's, that's what's going on in God changing us and transforming us is, is the direction of our love. We all love. It's the direction that's hard to do, and it's hard to do for, for two reasons. One thing is that people are not lovable some of the time. And we know that in marriage especially. So, so we have to uh, realize that that's going to be difficult to love sometimes, but the other reason is we are unlove prone. When my brother was in the seventh grade and I was in the sixth grade, I came home from the sixth grade one afternoon and my mom said, some terrible, terrible news. Your brother was at the junior high and he dove out of a tree. They had trees on the schoolyard back in my day. He dove out of the tree and landed on both wrists, broke both his wrists. I was so excited. You know, I didn't like my brother. We didn't get along. But she says, Doug is accident prone. In other words, it's easy for him to get... He's got to work hard not to hurt himself. You know? That, that uh, uh, a movie, uh, The Grinch, with Jim Carrey in it, my wife and I, we have to watch that every Christmas. Uh, the Grinch only cares about himself. Uh, those little Who's down in Whoville, he doesn't like them. And right at the end of the movie, he's up on top of that mountain, all that snow, and he's lying there, and, and that little tiny heart that he has that only cares about himself, it starts to grow, and he starts to care about the Who's. He doesn't like and he goes, What's happening to me? And he's kicking his legs in the snow. He doesn't want to change. It's so hard to change and love those little guys. You know, it's kind of like in the summer when we're standing in the, on the edge of this 
ice cold water coming down out of the mountains is so warm and, and everybody say jump jump and we don't want to jump because it's nice here I don't want to be in that cold water and to make that really practical you know men have a tendency especially me and I know a lot of men some men don't but uh, it's hard for us to say I love you or forgive me or I'm sorry or excuse me you know those kinds of things difficult for men some of you wives recognize that well when I'm walking down Winco shopping and I see Two grocery carts and two women blocking my way. <laughs> and i got to get through there somehow. And I'm not going to backtrack, see. So I, I, my, my kids, they, they go, they go uh, when, when, they're, when they're trouble, they don't know what to do, they'll say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And that's what I'm thinking. And I hear this little voice that says, well, say excuse me, and they'll open up. I can't do that. I'm a man. <laughs> so... So, so what I do is I, I, I kind of, you know, try to scoot or try to get around them. And what do they do? They say, excuse me. I'm supposed to say excuse me, not the ladies. So if you ever catch me in, in, in the grocery store and, and you see me coming down the aisle, don't let me by. Turn your cart sideways. <laughs> Stop me. Make me say excuse me. See, love is not easy. It's a real challenge, especially for unlovable people and uh, when we all get unlovable. But uh, one, of the, one of the verses that hit me years ago is in Proverbs 10:23, where it says, Wisdom is like sport to a man of a person of understanding. Wisdom is like a sport. And so love should be like a sport to us. And when we, when we do well, which is maybe pulling back and not saying anything or actually doing something, we win. And we can say, Lord, I did it for you. I'm going to, I'm going to love. Okay, one, one last little story here. Last early uh, December, uh, so after a church service, I was talking to someone. And... I wanted to know that person had a hard job and I wanted to know how hard it was and, and I tried to comfort them and uh, they, they sent me a note later and I, I uh, uh, and told me that, that they were blessed by that and then, and then I was blessed by that and uh, we, we, lo- we uh, it was infectious love is infectious by the way I just realized that I've gone way over and I honestly would uh, let's we're gonna we're gonna have communion right now, okay? <laughs> I had this thing timed at a half an hour. Uh, when we take communion, we uh, we eat the bread and we drink the fruit of the vine to remember not only that Jesus Christ died for us, but he's also coming back. And he's, we're going to have a great banquet with him when he comes back. So we're going to remember that. Father, thank you that, uh, that we can remember what you did for us. And we can look forward to when you're going to come back. You died for us. You gave your all that we might live. And we can have real peace in this life and joy because of what you've done. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.